slow down for just a moment to think about something with me. Why do you wear the clothes you wear? Is what you're wearing comfortable, uncomfortable? Is what you're wearing mainstream, countercultural, something else entirely? No matter what, your clothing is broadcasting something to everyone who sees you. Clothing is speech, and clothing has politics. So what is your saying? And who are you saying it to? Of all the clothing in the world, none stirs controversy quite like the veil or hijab. Women across the world are subject to laws about them. In some countries, women are arrested for not wearing veils. And in others, wearing that same veil could get you in legal trouble. The hijab is a powerful symbol. A symbol of devotion or oppression or heritage or even just personal preference. Untextbook producer Jana Amin never thought much about the veil she saw women wearing when she was growing up in Egypt. I grew up in Egypt surrounded by Muslim women who I saw as being empowered, driven, and passionate. And for many of them, they wore a veil and they saw that veil as a personal choice. And yet upon moving to the U.S., I was told by teachers, friends, the media, that Muslim women were victims of oppression, submissive servants, or even terrorists. And they often pointed to the veil as evidence of that. And so it was, you know, grappling with all these different perspectives on the veil that I myself came to see that the veil can be so many different things depending on who's wearing it or who's not wearing it. It has political implications and has had political implications throughout history. On this episode of Untextbooked, Jana interviews historian Laila Ahmed about her book, A Quiet Revolution, The Veil's Resurgence from the Middle East to America. This book shows that for many Muslim women, wearing the veil is not just an act of devotion, but an act of resistance. I'm Gabe Hostin. You're listening to Untextbooked. More after the break. Textbooked. So first of all, before we fully begin, um, Professor Ahmed, I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But you know, when I was thinking about who might be the perfect person for this interview, of course, you were the first person I thought of. So thank you again for joining me. Well, I'm very flattered. Thank you. I'd be really interested in finding out why did you choose to write A Quiet Revolution, The Veil's Resurgence from the Middle East to America, your book about veiling and, you know, the resurgence of the veil here in the U.S.? I was sitting in America in the 1990s, having grown up in Cairo, where very, very few people were wore the veil. And certainly it was actually, to some extent, a lower class thing, not, a, not at all common among the middle class or the upper classes. So... So why were women in America in 1989 wearing hijab when they didn't wear it back 50 years ago in Cairo? That was my starting point. I needed to understand what had happened. So it was, a, if you go through my book, it was a political movement. It started, the revealing movement started from an organization called the Muslim Brotherhood, which was an organization of resistance to colonial British power. The veil was a resistance to the uh, British saying that Islam is inferior and natives are inferior to white people. And it was a reaffirmation of their identity as natives, but 
with pride in it. It's like like uh, black is beautiful, and that was in the sixties and seventies. That became part of the resistance to white supremacy. You know, I, one thing to compare it with is you know Gandhi when he began resisting the British, he started wearing these uh, cotton robes. So it, uh, all, these are all movements of resistance, which are also affirming something, a different cultural perspective from that of the dominant West. You know, that's fascinating because I think a lot of young people my age, especially young people living in the U.S. or just more generally in the West, can't fathom how the veil can be anything but either a garment or a symbol of impression. So can you tell me a little bit about what you found talking to women who both decided to veil and not to veil? What did they, you know, see the veil as a symbol of? And why did they choose to veil or not? You know, that's an awfully, awfully, awfully complicated story because one of the things I follow out in my book is how did veiling come back in Egypt? Was it an act of women's voluntary act or was it brilliant political organizing by a group of people who believed that the veil was essential as a symbol of resistance? So was it, as they claimed, because God demanded it? By the way, one of the things worth looking at, if anyone brings up the issue of the veil with you, look up a few on on Google, a few, uh, put in the Virgin Mary, and you will see in most of the paintings of her, She's wearing a hijab, a woman just like any Muslim woman's hijab. So that was the norm of dress over there for Christians, Muslims, and Jews. In America, it's a form of identity and performance. Look at what's her name, that woman who's now in the news a lot. Uh, Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar, exactly. You know, she, I mean, uh, she's very, it's a, it's, it's a, as you see, she dresses, I think, very beautifully. It's a crafted image that she's presenting as a quintessential Muslim woman, but also much more implicitly and quietly as a, I'm a woman of resistance. I'm not taking your, your, your defining me as inferior either because I'm black or because I'm Muslim. One, you know, it's, it, there's never a pure, pure answer. And that's partly, partly what I, one of my main points here, because if you ask women today, why are they wearing hijab? Is the answer going to give you what they actually believe or their personal feeling or what they think they want you to believe about? Mm-hmm. So it's it's very, very complicated. Yeah, and I mean, I think what really stood out to me in your answer, Professor Ahmed, was that you talked about the different kind of types of veils and reasons for veiling. And that's definitely something that's been true in my family in Egypt. I mean, I have a great aunt who, you know, wears the niqab. Um, so she only shows her eyes and she does it actually because she is mourning and because she has been mourning her her late husband. And so it's like there's so many different reasons and there's, I guess, a lot of depth to, you know, the question of veiling. That's a marvelous point you've made because it shows how either the notion that we have in the West that is oppressive. I mean, it's actually far more complex and subtle. You confirmed it with your experience that it actually is a very meaningful symbol in many different ways. And it looks different too. Yes, definitely looks different. So I guess, you know, when people talk of the veil, they often talk about the idea of empowerment, but it's often framed as, you know, people point to the veil as evidence of Muslim women's disempowerment. What are some of the narratives that we've all been conditioned to think about when it comes to gender and Islam? So when we say we, let's say focus on what we in America have internalized about Muslims and Muslim women in particular, that they're terribly oppressed, 
But Islam is many worse than uh, Judaism and Christianity. Over many years of study, I simply have cannot confirm that. It's not true. They're all patriarchal religions. All, all of them value men over women, give men more rights than women. You know, you can see that oppression is universal. Women being used by men is universal. So there's, there's similarities and differences. Some are better off in some ways. For example, in the history, if you look at the history of Britain in the 19th century, uh, if women married, if she, if she was a wealthy woman, the husband owned her property automatically. This never happened in Egypt. If a woman owned anything or if she earned anything, no husband was entitled to her money. Although they had already very emphatically the myth that over there they're inferior, not like us white uh, civilized Britons. But that wasn't true. But there is as another complication in that in the Middle East, uh, unveiling actually happened because of Western domination. Egypt was under British rule through the first half of the 20th century. And there was a guy called Lord Cromer, who was the ruler of Egypt from the 1882 to 1907, 25 years. He ruled Egypt. Cromer argued that the veil was the sign of the oppression of women, and he had to, the Muslims had to give up wearing the veil before the British could consider them on the way to being civilized. At the same time, Lord Cromer, who had the power to do so, closed girls' schools, and he closed a medical school for women because he said, in the civilized world, treatment by medical men is the rule, not women. And it's worth remembering at that point that English women, this is, we're talking about the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, British women in those days wore corsets that literally broke their ribs so they could look nice. But that was not bad. But wearing a veil, which didn't hurt anybody physically, was a sign of inferiority and bad treatment of women. And in many ways, what's happening with brown people, that is Muslims, uh, is very, very parallel to what's happening with, uh, with African-American people. Both have been defined, and both have been defined negatively, Muslims and African-Americans, as somehow implicitly inferior for reasons that people simply believe to be true. And they are actually mythologies, ideas that have been developed by the dominant culture as a way to subdue and keep in an inferior place the, the others, capital O others. What the issue is, who's, what history are we, are we believing? What history, not only believing, enacting, because you can see there directly the link between what people believe in America and what's happening over there. Uh, something that Laura Bush said in a speech as we went to war with Afghanistan. She said, this war is essential because we have to save civilization and we have to save the women of Afghanistan. That's why we have to go to war, something like that. So we have to bomb them because we need to save the women. I remember, you heard of Noel Sadawi? Yes. Very, very famous uh, Egyptian feminist who was a doctor, who was one of the people who was the first to take up the fight against clitoridectomy. So during the Iraq war, an American journalist, a woman, asked Nawal Sadawi a question about clitoridectomy. And Nawal replied, that's the problem with you American feminists. You, you don't care if you're bomb killers, you just want to make sure that we die with our clitorises. 
So all these all of these signals are completely entangled. They're not. You can't believe that anything we do, particularly the most powerful countries in the world, uh, what they do has no effect on everybody else. They do have an effect, and we are part of one global community. It's all part of an interlocking story, complicated interlocking story. Thank you for that. And I think, you know, one of the things you brought up that I think will resonate with many of our listeners is kind of the idea of white feminism that we've been, you know, talking about a lot because of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit about how you've seen white feminism contradict or come into conflict with Muslim feminism. My goodness, that's the story of my life in America. <laughs> <laughs> Mine <Yeah>. too, so. <laughs> you almost do, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's that's how it is. It's, I mean, I, I profoundly believe that feminism is meaningless unless it takes in race as centrally as gender. Anyone who does feminism without looking at issues of race is not doing feminism as I think it should be done because they are completely entangled with each other. Thank you so much. Professor Laila Ahmed is the author of A Quiet Revolution, The Veil's Resurgence from the Middle East to America, A Border Passage from Cairo to America, A Woman's Journey, and Women and Gender in Islam, The Historical Roots of a Modern Debate. And, you know, you can find all of these online, right, Professor Ahmed? Absolutely, yes. And thank you again, Professor Ahmed, for joining me. Like, really, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you, Jenna, for these wonderful uh, comments and, and questions. Dr. Laila Ahmed researches gender and Islam at Harvard Divinity School. Jana Amin is a high school senior at Milton Academy in Massachusetts, and she produced this episode. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernanda Rain is our Gordon Ramsay. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbooked. There, we're sharing more stories from the present and the past that shouldn't be overlooked. You know, it takes a lot of work to make this show, and we need your help to keep bringing you great interviews like this one. Go to untextbook.com and click support. Your donation will make a big difference. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.